If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 17. We're going to pick up the story, <clears throat> verse 16. If not, it's, uh, it'll be up here on the screen behind me as well. We saw the end of, of last week. Paul is traveling and arrives in Athens, and today we're going to get to see what, what happens when he gets there. Um, Athens, of course, was a, uh, a cultural center of the world at that point. There's a couple other ones that maybe had, had over, kind of overtaken it, but Athens was prided itself on, on knowing things, on philosophy and education, and on, on the, the, the ideas, um, new or old, and debating those ideas. And you're going to see some of that today as Paul uh, is able to, uh, to speak with, with those in Athens. You're also going to see today is maybe a side of Paul you haven't seen thus far. Here you're going to get to see a little bit of the depths of his, his knowledge, wisdom, and his education. Paul is maybe one of the most educated of, of the first Christians. And today I think you're going to get to see some of that. If you ever read, read the book of Romans, you know that as well. As the book of Romans is uh, pretty deep and uh, pretty, a lot of, a lot of uh, deep thinking went into that book. And so Paul, of course, is its author. We're going to jump in in Acts chapter 17, verse 16. It says this, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul's going to encounter quite a few groups here right from the, the start. Uh, as Paul's walking through, through Athens, he's troubled by what he sees, and that is the statues of all these gods and goddesses that they had believed in throughout history. And Paul is troubled by that, and he's going to use that idea, as you're going to see in just a few minutes, when he, he debates them. So he goes to the synagogues like he's done throughout his entire missionary trip, first to the synagogue, where people are going to have a history in the book of the Old Testament, and he's going to bring Jesus to life by using the Old Testament. But here we see something else that happens, and he's done this in other cities so far as well. But he doesn't just stay in the synagogue and talk to Jewish people or, or God-fearing Gentiles or Greeks. He says here that he goes out as well into the marketplace day by day with those who are just there. So Paul is reaching out to people who have no history, who have no background in the Old Testament, who know nothing about it. And we've seen, again, we've seen Paul do this in other cities like Philippi and other places where he speaks to people who have no background, no history of the Old Testament. Paul is doing it here in the marketplace. A place if you're trying to meet people would be the place that you would go. While he's in this marketplace, apparently, there's a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers that begin to debate with him. They're excited to have somebody new that they can speak to and talk about. So I want to give you a little background on, on what these people thought and believed the best of our knowledge. The Epicureans were members from largely the upper class. They had wealth. They denied that the divine had taken any, had, had, had any hand in designing what we see, the earth, nature. They believed that the deities could only be known by their senses, by our five senses. 
and that the goal of life for them was generally pleasure, staying away from pain and doing something that you enjoyed doing. Where the Stoics, on the other hand, you can probably tell by their name and by the English word that we use, what Stoic means, are of a very different breed. They believed that reason was paramount, that our thinking, our ability to think and reason through problems was the most important thing, and that fate controlled destiny. So we only played a part in our own lives. They emphasize controlling one's attitude and emotions. Stoic, the, the ethics of the Stoics were much more similar to that of, of Christians. So Stoic people would have been, they would have lived their life much more similarly to Paul than the Epicureans would have done. Right? That's why when you think of someone, if you just describe somebody today as Stoic, what does that mean? Not a lot of motion, not a lot of up and down. They're kind of level-headed and just there. That's where this idea comes from. The Stoics thought they should reserve their, their emotion and control their attitude, especially anger and fear. And so there's two different groups of people. Both of them are, are, are speaking with Paul. So remember that as Paul goes through this section, remember his audience, who he's speaking to. Because as you're going to see, Paul is going to tailor the message to the audience he has. He's going to use different ways of speaking the good news of Jesus to people based on who those people are and what they believe and think already. And so he's been accused of advocating for foreign gods because he's discussed this, this Jesus. He's giving them the good news of death, burial, and resurrection. So they, meet, they, bring, him, they bring him excuse me, to a meeting, the Areopagus. Areopagus was the city, essentially the Athens city council. Roughly 100 members. They could investigate foreign cults and were able to to grant visiting speakers public lectures. So they could, if, if you came and visited and they, they kind of did a little interview with you, thought you were good enough, you could actually get up and speak. Remember, this section, verse 21, tells us that the, those who lived in Athens loved new ideas. They loved listening to ideas and philosophy and, and debating and talking about those things. And so Paul is brought in front of this group. And they ask him, hey, what are you teaching? We want, we'd like to know what you're out here on our streets talking about and teaching. If you see in verse 20, it says, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. They love to sit there and listen to what Paul has to say. They just don't know who Paul is yet and the mistake that they're making. Because if we know anything about Paul, he loves to talk. And if you're willing to listen, then you're two peas in a pod. And so Paul is going to give them this idea then that he's bringing to Athens. The strange idea, they call it. Acts 17, starting in verse 22, says this, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Paul begins, like most ancient speakers did when they spoke to people they didn't know, with a compliment, even though his compliment is a little backhanded. You notice, what does he say? People of Athens, I see this you, in every way. You are very religious. He says, man, you've got all kinds of gods and goddesses. You're very religious people. Now, Paul doesn't mean that in a good way for them, but he's beginning, trying the best he can to begin in a very positive way. He says, for as I walked around and care, looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown god. The, the interesting thing is we actually know when and where those inscriptions were first made. There was a man, and I'm going to butcher his name, Epimenides, who was a Greek poet and seer from the island of Crete, and he lived in the 6th century BCE, before the Christian era. 
era and became known as one of the seven wise poets in ancient Greece. And the story about him goes like this. It says, according to the story, Athens was being attacked by pestilence and after consulting with the oracle of Delphi, the Athenians sent a ship to Crete to ask for the help of Epimenides. Epimenides agreed to help the Athenians. He came to Athens and brought some sheep to the Areopagus, right where Paul is speaking. He released the sheep and allowed them to go where they pleased. Wherever a sheep lay down, Epimenides had the spot marked so that the sacrifices could be made to the unknown local divinity there. Epimenides' remedy worked, and Athens was delivered from its scourge. Thus, from that day onward, visitors to Athens would find altars to unknown gods around the city. So these altars had been around for roughly 600 years by the Paul by the time Paul comes to Athens, and he sees them, and he's going to use them to his advantage when it comes to, to sharing the good news of the gospel. How important is it for us to know the culture we are in in order to be able to share the good news and know the people you are speaking to? Paul is going to quote from this same poet in just a little bit. You're going to see it. I'm going to show that to you. So Paul says, I see all these inscriptions, I see all these altars, saw all these gods and goddesses, even to unknown gods, covering all your bases. Hey, if we missed one, here's a, here's a plaque for you. Just in case you're out there, we didn't know about you, and we'd like you to bless us, here's the plaque. And Paul says that they are ignorant of the very thing they worship. Now, these are people who are learned, people who take a lot of, of, of respect and pride in the fact that they know lots of things. And when Paul calls them ignorant, it probably not makes them all that happy. Uh, but if there's anything we've learned about Paul so far, he's not much for tickling ears, is he? He's not real concerned about how you think he's coming across. He's going to give you the truth. Doesn't mean he doesn't tailor the message, but he's going to give you the truth nonetheless. So he's going to proclaim to them the truth. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as some of, our, our, of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul begin, begins by giving them the, the good news very quickly, starting literally at creation and working his way there in like a paragraph, right? Like, this is the history. This is what you need to know. This is who, who God really is. You have all these altars and all these statues to people and things that you've created by your own human hands, Paul says, but our God is not created by human hands. He is the creator, Paul says. He doesn't, doesn't need us to do anything for him. He is far too powerful for that. That's verse 25. It says, from one man, we know that one man's name, Adam, which just means dirt man. From Adam, he's created everything and all nations that they should inhabit the earth. And he knows the boundaries of their land. So God did this so that they might seek him and perhaps reach out for him, even though he's right there always. And then he quotes 
Epipenides in verse 28. See the little quote mark? For in him we live and move and have our being. It says, hey, remember that guy who came 600 years ago with those sheep and, they, and you made those statues to those unknown God? Remember him? I'm just going to quote from him to drive my point home if that's okay with you. And so he does. And then the second quote, we are his offspring, comes from another poet who grew up near where Paul grew up. Eratus was his name, and he grew up near where Paul came from. Paul is using their language, their poets, their people, the people they know, they've studied, to do what? To bring the good news of Jesus to them. And how often do we miss a chance because we're talking past each other? Because we don't understand the situation the person's in. If the person we're trying to minister to is in grief and is hurting, you bringing your Bible out and quoting to them isn't going to get you very far. If you don't know the audience in which you're speaking to, then the words that you speak are hollow. They're empty. No matter how good the news might be. If we don't invest in the lives of the people and know where they are, right where they are, right then and there, what's the point of bumping our gums in the first place? Paul has done his homework. He knows. He grew up. He got an education like them. He knows how to relate to them. He knows how to bring the good news to them in a way they're going to understand and grasp. And we have to do the same thing. Or we're just going to speak past people all the time. Paul continues in this last section. Oh, I think we skipped. Did I skip one? Yeah, it should be 29 through 31. It says this, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. What do they make idols out of? The statues Paul has walked past, what are they made of? Gold and silver and stone. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says, get rid of these worthless things that you are worshiping. So they are just mere creations of us, of human beings, made of gold and silver and, and stone. They may be shiny and pretty, but they're not worthy of our adoration. They're not worthy of our worship. Let's worship the one who created all those things, not the created we worship the Creator. And he's going to conclude this section like this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Aragopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and, and a number of others. What we have so what we've seen happen to Paul everywhere he goes. When he gives the good news, there are some who believe instantly. Some who, who hear it, who wrestle with it in their minds and go, I think this is it. I think this might just be the truth. Now, there's many who don't believe, right? And they invite Paul back to speak again. But every time Paul gets a chance to speak, he's going to speak the truth in love and speak the good news of the gospel. And there are those who believe. Generally, when Paul lists names, he, he lists names that he thinks people or other people might actually recognize or, or know. And so we're not sure about these two, of why these two are listed, but we know that they're there, that they believed in this Lord Jesus. 
They had faith and trust. They did what Paul had asked them to do. The powerful section, as Paul goes into the lion's den, essentially, of Athens and stands toe-to-toe with the brightest minds of his time and his place. I know it's a very short section to see, but what you see in it is Paul becomes, as he tells us, all things to all people in order to win some. And Paul, instead of opening the Old Testament, which they don't care about and they're not going to understand in the Aragopagus, what's he do? He goes from their sources, from their books, from the knowledge they would know, and threads that into the gospel, into the good news. It's important for us to do the same. Those of us who are 30 plus now, who are trying to understand the generations that come after us, it's the same. We might speak the same language, we might grow up in the same place, but we've grown up very, very differently. They've grown, these younger people have grown up with technology their entire lives. And it's a huge part of their life. If you want to understand them, if you want to communicate with them, you've got to try to grasp it a little bit. It doesn't mean you have to become great at it. I'm not saying you need to get a Facebook and a Twitter and an Instagram. I'm not saying that. It'll take you like three weeks alone probably to figure that out. But what you have to do is you have to be able to speak the language. And so oftentimes, even in our own culture, we miss each other generationally. Because we grew up, I, I taught this last week, uh, Launchpad on Tuesday and Wednesday, and I made the realization on 9-11 that none of the kids were alive when it happened. And that I was like, whoa. Like they, they don't remember turning the TV on and seeing it. They didn't feel it. it. It's just a history lesson to them. They don't have the same emotion that you and I have because we... We watched it happen. We saw those, those planes crash into those towers and we, and we saw what happened afterwards and we watched the news that night and then the next morning that, hoping that they would just keep pulling, pulling people out. We watched the recovery happen months and years as long as it took. We watched the rebuild. We, we have emotion tied into that. The younger generation, they, weren't, they don't have that emotion. It's not their fault. They, weren't there. they didn't see it. They, all they can do is read about it. All they can do is hear about it. Like if you were alive then and you were like older than like five, you know exactly where you were when you heard about the attacks of 9-11. They don't have that story. They don't have those feelings. All they can do is open it up and look at the pictures and watch the video and hear you tell the story. And so if you don't want their memory to fade, you know what you have to do. You have to tell the story. What is Paul doing? He's using their ways in their days to tell the story. If you can't take 9-11 and the sacrifice made by 343 firefighters, 60 police officers, and 8 EMS personnel as they ran up towers, you can't use that story to tell the greatest story ever told about sacrifice, then you, you get to start back at square one. If every 9-11 you can't look at your kids, your grandkids, your great-grandkids and say, look at the sacrifice that was made. There's one who made a sacrifice about 2,000 years earlier. Let me tell him, tell you about him. And you haven't done the work. Because that's, that's a pretty smooth transition, is it not? Hey, look at these guys running up those towers. You know what Jesus did? He was beaten. But he was innocent. 
carried his own cross part of the way to the place they call Golgotha. He had committed no crime. He had done nothing wrong. Yet the sentence for him was death. He was nailed to the cross and died an extraordinarily painful death. Not like the two that were surrounding him who who had committed crimes and maybe had just deserved their punishment. He had done nothing wrong. Yet he didn't scream at the top of his lungs about how great an injustice it is or was. But like a sheep to the shearer, he was silent. He refused to take the mix of painkiller they had made for him because he wanted to feel every ounce of it in his body as he took away your sin and my sin. He was buried. Just a few days later, he came back to life again. The only one who's been crucified and came back to life. Conquering death once and for all on our behalf. So you could live a much better life right now and an even greater life to come. We have to speak their language, speak their way for them to understand it. But the good news hasn't changed. From when it happened to when Paul wrote about it and shared it here, In Athens until right now, it's the same. Death, burial, resurrection. The greatest event in human history. Sacrifice for you and for me. What better news could there possibly be? Let's share it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the men and women who gave so much 18 years ago, who rushed into buildings that were on fire, and that were about to come down to save others. God, we are inspired by their sacrifice all this time later because it points us to you. It reminds us of your sacrifice. You sending your one and only son to this earth, take on flesh and blood to live a, to live a perfect and sinless life only to offer himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross. To pay for every sin we had ever committed or would ever commit. God, we thank you so much for this Jesus who shows us what sacrifice is, what it means to give to others. And God, would you help us to share that message today to all generations, regardless of their age or where they come from, just the language they speak. Help us to be your messengers and your bringers and heralders of good news. God, we thank you for your son Jesus and all he has done for us. We don't deserve it. We couldn't possibly earn it, but that's why you call it grace. Again, God, we thank you and we love you. And it's in his powerful and healing name all God's people said,